Hello everyone, I'm Elise Spenner. And I'm Hannah Sarah. And welcome back to the High School SCOTUS podcast. We know it's been a while, but as we await the avalanche of Supreme Court opinions coming in the next two months, so my goodness, we've got some amazing episodes coming your way. And first off, I actually had an excellent conversation last month with Jonathan Glader about student loan debt and all its implications in the two pending cases before the court. Professor Glader is a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, and is also the faculty director of the Center for Consumer Law and Economic Justice at Berkeley. He also worked in partnership with Dalia Jimenez to start the Student Loan Law Initiative, a group dedicated to researching student debt. Before Professor Glader was a professor, he was a reporter at the New York Times for nine years, writing about the legal profession, legal education, civil and criminal cases, and the money around higher education. So basically, Professor Glader is a rock star and super awesome and has done just incredible things in his life. And we are so lucky that he was able to join us to talk about all things student loan policies because they are so especially relevant to high school and college students, including the history of student debt in America, the two cases currently before the court, Biden versus Nebraska and U.S. Department of Education versus Brown, both which concern the constitutionality of Biden's student debt relief plan. And obviously, we also had to talk about our favorite major questions doctrine and how student debt became a political flashpoint uh, and why access to higher education has become so culturally and socially divisive in today's society. And not to forget, we also had to ask Professor Glader about his time as a high school student, of course, as a reporter, because he worked for the New York Times and as a law associate. He's basically done everything most people do in five lifetimes. So listen up, it's an amazing conversation. Professor Glader, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about this. Super excited as well. So tell me first, and this is a question we ask everyone, and I'm sad Hannah isn't here to ask it. What were you like as a high school student? <laughs> oh my goodness. Gosh, that's going back a ways. I am sure my classmates would describe me as a complete nerd who spent too much time on schoolwork, but who hopefully was, oh gosh, regarded as also someone who was not the worst person to hang out with. So I'm sure I was not at all cool or as cool as I would have liked to be, but I like to think I wasn't the nerdiest of nerds. <laughs> no, that's what a lot of people that come on our podcast say. <laughs> we're, a, we're a home to nerds, but also nerds that like to think they're kind of cool. So when you were leaving high school, starting college, what did you think your career was going to look like? I did not know. I think that I thought of college as a chance to study and explore topics that I hadn't had a chance to learn about in high school, to learn about topics that I didn't even know were topics. When I graduated from high school, for example, I had never taken an economics class. Like I knew nothing about economics. Lots of high schools now have economics courses. So when I went to college, I had a chance to take an economics class and fascinating, just a fascinating way of thinking about how the world works, for example. And so I was looking forward to the chance to be independent, that feeling of being able to make my own choices about what I wanted to learn about, but also to make choices that I didn't even know existed yet. I guess I was very conscious going to college of how much I didn't know. And I thought of college as a way to fill those gaps. That seems like a really good approach. But you ended up finding yourself at, and maybe this is later in your career, but as a reporter, talk to me about how that happened and how you saw that fitting into your journey of just understanding the world and especially through an economic lens. 
Sure. So I started writing for the school newspaper in high school, and I kept writing for the college newspaper on and off for at least the first two to three years that I was in college. Senior year, I think I maybe wrote like a weekly column, and that was the extent of my involvement. I always liked to write, and I always liked trying to figure things out. And that was a perfect recipe, although I didn't really know it at the time, for being a journalist. And I found myself applying in college for internships at newspapers, you know, at daily newspapers. Um, and remember, this is, you know, long enough ago that a daily newspaper was that paper thing that would be picked up at a newsstand, right? It was not producing content for a website. It was writing words that would be printed and that someone would consume on the on the printed page. And that sounds so quaint now, but it sounded incredibly glamorous to me to have a job where what I had to do was figure something out and then turn around and write about it. What a scam, right? What a scam. How much fun is that? And so I was lucky I landed internships at a few different newspapers starting after my sophomore year in college. And once I started doing it, it was it's pretty addictive. It's probably not that different from your experience with media, right? It's it's you get jazzed chasing the story, turning around and writing the story, sharing the story with other people that you think that they ought to be aware of. And so I found myself doing that and I actually put off grad school for a year so that I could keep working as a journalist in Washington. Yeah, I was eighth grade journalism club. And then now here we are. It's just it's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it's a good one. So yeah, I completely understand. So our listeners know that we're here to talk about student debt and all that in the case before the court. How did you find yourself working in education law. Sure. Let me do it through student debt. So when I was a reporter at the New York Times for several years, for a few of those years, my beat was what we called higher education and money. And that meant learning a lot about student loans, which I hadn't really thought about. I used them to help pay for law school, but I hadn't really thought about them as a policy tool. I hadn't thought about them in terms of the consequences for borrowers. And as a reporter, I had, I had the privilege of both talking to experts about the design of student loans, right? Why, how do we use them? What are the different loan repayment plans, things like that. But also more importantly, to talk to students about what the effects of loans were on their lives. I remember a couple of articles where I talked to in particular law school grads who had gone on to be in one case, a public defender, and in another case, a prosecutor, a, a local assistant district attorney, just describing to me how they, one of them had to work at the local UPS factory to supplement her income in order to continue working. But she was determined to do it because she thought her job as, a, I can't remember whether she was a, a prosecutor or a defense attorney, but she thought her job was so important that she was prepared to do what she needed to do in order to meet her financial obligations and keep that job that was her dream job, right? That was that was meaningful to her and that she thought was meaningful to the wider community. And getting to have those conversations really helped me see that this kind of debt has really powerful effects on students' lives, on the choices that students make in ways that we don't always recognize. Or the, I think we do now, but this was almost 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And student debt as kind of a, a public policy issue, a political issue, wasn't as high profile as it is now. I mean, if you had told me then that there would be a Supreme Court case about an administration's effort to cancel student debt en masse, I would have dismissed that as an absurd possibility. I just would not have believed that that was going to happen. And 
So during the pandemic, student loans became a political controversy, kind of a flashpoint in a way. What did the pandemic do to exacerbate our awareness of student loans and their impact on people? I don't know that the pandemic itself had that kind of effect. I think awareness of the effects of student loans on borrowers were already increasingly salient. There was more and more media attention, popular attention to student loans as an issue. I think part of what's happened is the pause in repayment obligations for federal student loans have illustrated what the benefits are of relieving students of the obligations to pay on these loans, right, for some period of time, which is it's a compelling preview of what the benefits to borrowers might be of some degree of cancellation. And so how did we get to a place where administrations were deciding to cancel or to pause student loan debt during the pandemic? How did we get from where you said 20 years ago, it would have been absurd into now where it's kind of a normal thing? Right. I don't know if it's normal, but I mean, it's obviously a serious policy, right? Serious policy that people in powerful positions are thinking about. I think what's happened is student debt has spread more widely. More students have to borrow. They have to borrow larger amounts, right? Tuition prices need to rise. So we see more recognition that pursuing higher education, especially at a traditional four-year public college or university, for more and more students requires borrowing. And also the aggregate amount, that, that $1.6 trillion figure that gets thrown around in the press coverage all the time, that's a tremendous number, right? This is a burden that's spread pretty widely and people are paying it later and later in life, right? So people are in their 30s and their 40s still paying off student loan obligations and people are putting off other kinds of investments, putting off other life decisions because of the obligation to repay on their student loans. And there's more recognition of that. How do students end up owing more than they originally borrowed, perhaps even a decade later? And how do student loans do the opposite of what they were intended to do in some ways? Yeah, let me take those two separately. It's possible if you don't pay down the principal, right? Interest can continue to accrue on the principal. So if you're not making payments that are large enough over time, your total balance owed can increase. So there have been some studies of this lately that have found exactly the phenomenon that you're describing, where someone is paying but not paying enough to reduce the principal. And so at the end of some repayment period, they find themselves no better off, right? Because of the interest that keeps accruing and because they're not paying enough to do more than perhaps reduce the interest obligation. I want to respond to your second question because I've been thinking a lot about this. There are critics of student loans who suggest that these are harmful policy tools. And if you're a student loan borrower, you might well feel as though you're being harmed by, and you might have this very difficult, even insurmountable financial burden as a result of the payment obligation that you face every month on your student loan. It's an instrument that has a dual nature. So in the absence of student loans, students, right, and we're talking now about government, right, federal student loans. In the absence of those, students would have to borrow from financial institutions at worse rates, right? It would be more costly to borrow from a bank to pay for IR education. So the federal student loan works to put higher education within reach for students who might otherwise be unable to afford the opportunity. 
that's good, right? As a policy outcome, I like that. More higher education, more accessible higher education to more people who historically have not had that kind of opportunity win on all fronts. But debt has this peculiar characteristic of having to be paid back. And so students who have to use student loans disproportionately, students who are poorer, because why? Because they don't have money. That's why they need to borrow, right? And it's more and more students as the price goes up, more and more students who need to borrow larger amounts. For students who don't have the financial outcome after college or after they don't complete college, the repayment burden becomes extremely difficult to manage. So debt is a very imperfect policy tool, not because it doesn't work, it does, but because of the cost and who bears that cost. So tell me about how the issue of student debt, and I think we've already touched on this a little bit, but intersects with systemic racism and perhaps perpetuates it because of where that burden lands. Right. So we know that members of different, all of this is averages and aggregates, right? So like I was just saying a moment ago, the outcomes can vary, right? First, but we know that, for example, Black borrowers tend to borrow larger amounts, right? And it will take us longer to repay our debts. Okay, so there's there's research on that. So what, what that means is something like cancellation might be a particular benefit to students, right, in who are members of particular communities that have to borrow more because they have less wealth or enjoy lower incomes, right? So in that sense, there's a relationship between the need to use debt to finance higher education and race. Now that we've laid a little bit of a groundwork of what student debts are, how they've become such a prominent topic of discussion, just in a practical sense and also in politics, explain to me what the two cases that have reached the court are asking and how they differ from each other. Because I think it's important to remember that there are two different cases here and they aren't just one and the same. So both cases are challenging the authority of the Department of Education to pursue this policy of cancellation of student debt, right? So $10,000 across the board for borrowers, up to $20,000 for borrowers who receive Pell Grants as undergrads, right? So the students who are lower income as undergrads. And the way that they differ, they differ in the nature of the claims about standing. Standing is this idea that in order to sue, you have to establish that you were hurt. Otherwise, you don't have standing to sue. I mean, if you haven't been hurt, there's no basis for the court intervening, doing something to try to help you out. The whole idea of the court intervening is, is to correct, to try to make you whole for an injury that you've suffered. The theory in one case, the case coming up through the Eighth Circuit, is that the state, which is the challenger, right, the attorney general of the state, stands to possibly lose funds that it might otherwise get from a state-affiliated entity, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, Mohila, in the future if loans are canceled, right? That because Mohila is a servicer of federal student loans, Mohila's revenue stream might be affected if there are fewer loans to service. And if that happens, Mohila might pay less money to the state. So that's one theory of standing in that case. And it's one that critics have suggested is tenuous. I've suggested it's tenuous because we don't know, right? We don't know what's going to happen to Mohila's revenue stream. And we don't know what Mohila is going to do, even if their revenue stream suffers as a result of cancellation. So it seems a little bit speculative and 
possibly opening up the doors for standing arguments in future cases that in the past might not have gotten all the way to the Supreme Court. The other plaintiffs are individual borrowers. So this is the other case coming out of Texas who are essentially complaining about the design of student loan cancellation, that they're not getting as much or any relief that they should. And what's odd about that complaint is the remedy of denying cancellation to everybody doesn't really, doesn't help them, right? The remedy, the remedy you would think typically would be, so therefore order the program to accept me, order the Department of Education to, to cancel my loans too, and that's not what the courts has done. That's not what's happened. So it's also an interesting standing question because the relief sought doesn't seem to respond to the injury that's being claimed. All of that's standing. And then there's the substantive connection. I keep going or tell me if, if I'm talking too much. <laughs> no, you're all good. It's a really complicated case. I want to talk about standing a little bit because I think it's such sure. a big question in sure. these two cases. About the Mohila one, is there also another argument that Mohila is a third party and so that they should be bringing the case themselves and not like, why is Missouri bringing the case? This is one of the questions that came up during the oral argument where the justices asked, well, could, could Mohila bring this case directly instead of the state on its behalf? And the lawyers for both sides can seem to agree that, yes, Mohila could sue itself if Mohila wanted to, but Mohila hasn't. Which makes it seem weird that Missouri is doing it. Like, why, why is Missouri at all related to the Mohila issue? Right. I mean, right. It looks like a political decision, right, to pursue this litigation that Mohila does not want to bring itself. I'll let you talk about the substantive stuff now. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. But it, talk about also the major questions doctrine, because that is super relevant, obviously, to yeah. the case, and whether you think it should apply in this case or what you think the court will say about that. Sure. So the substantive question is whether the statute, the law that the Department of Education is relying on as the basis of its authority to cancel debt actually provides for this kind of broad cancellation, right? Whether the department has the authority to do what it does under the statute that they claim says they can do it. And the language in the statute, it allows the secretary to waive or modify, right, terms of Title IV right? So federal student loans, Title IV of the Higher Education Act. And the question is whether waive or modify, I, I joked with my students about this, the question is whether waive or modify actually means waive or modify the way that the department says that it does. And the argument that the challengers to the administration have made is no, right? That, that it can't mean this kind of broad mass relief that this language contemplated a more case-by-case, -case, right? Individual borrowers who are in financial straits who could benefit from modification or waiver of payment obligations. The problem, as the government points out in their briefing to the Supreme Court, is there are other parts of the statute that contemplate the possibility of mass cancellation, right, explicitly, right, saying, or maybe not mass cancellation explicitly, but, but say that it doesn't have to be individualized relief. To, to, to individual borrowers based on their particular situations. This is what gets us to the major questions doctrine. So the argument that the plaintiffs make is, look, the plaintiffs being the, the challengers to the administration's action. Congress, when they enacted the law that includes this language about waiver or modification, Congress didn't mean to grant so much authority to the department that such a big policy decision 
with such large dollar amounts attached constitutes a major question, a question of such importance that if the legislature or Congress has not spoken very clearly, the court should be skeptical about an agency's interpretation that results in the agency having that kind of broad authority. So all of this takes place, I think of it as a multi-level chess game. One of the chess boards for the justices has to do with the power of what scholars will refer to as the administrative state, right? What, how much can agencies do? And the court in exercising the major questions doctrine is trimming back what the administrative state can do, saying no executive agencies like the Department of Education, you can do what Congress says you can do, but you can't do more than what Congress says you can do. And if Congress hasn't spoken clearly, and it's some really big policy that you're trying to enact, we might tell you, you can't do it. It's a major question. Congress has to more explicitly grant you the authority before we let you do it. Right. So even if waive or modify is a somewhat open-ended term, and especially if it is, then we should assume that Congress did not intend to give an agency just full-fledged authority to do whatever they want, and especially when it has such a significant economic impact as student loans do. That's the argument. That's the argument, right? That Congress could not have intended for what the administration has announced. Do you think it's unfair or perhaps not unfair, but not telling the full truth to just put a number on? Because I know the justices were saying this a lot, like it's trillions of dollars. And so it must be a major question. I don't know. I felt like that doesn't really fully encapsulate exactly the nuances of student debt and what this policy would do. Yeah, I don't know that the dollar, the, the dollar amounts don't reach quite that high in terms of the estimated cost of cancellation, but they are big amounts. The question is whether a big dollar amount alone makes something a major question, right? There was the moment in the oral argument where one of the justices said it asked something along the lines of, if you ask a member of Congress whether student debt cancellation was a big deal, what would they say? But that doesn't sound like the right test either for figuring out whether something's a major question. And what the court has said in the past, in prior cases, invoking the major question doctrine, and this is all relatively recent, um, is that if an agency goes and finds kind of obscure rule and uses it as a basis for this exercise of broad authority, potentially remaking an industry, you know what, that's not appropriate, right? That kind of broad remaking of an industry is a major question for Congress. But this doesn't look like that because this authority has already been used recently over the course of the pandemic. So it seems a little more difficult to try to argue that this was a major question beyond anything that Congress right, could have contemplated. Why not have sued earlier if so? Right, because we didn't talk about this completely, but the Trump administration also did similar things at the start of the pandemic under Secretary DeVos to cancel student loans, or at least put them on pause. More put them under. on pause, that's right. That's right, and so right. if that's a major question also, why didn't you sue then? Is that, is that what you're saying? That's right. That would be the argument suggesting this looks like partisan politics rather than pursuit of a, a particular remedy. And this brings us back to standing, a remedy that would benefit the plaintiffs. And I think it's interesting because I feel like we've seen this a lot in cases where standing is a little bit questionable or ambiguous and the major questions doctrine isn't called upon. I'm thinking of like West Virginia versus EPA, which is that case last year. And it was, first of all, it was like, do they really have standing? And then it was also like, does the major questions doctrine really apply? Do you feel like the court sometimes just chooses to hear cases because they want to make a decision on them or think it's politically pertinent, not because the group actually has standing? 
Oh, goodness. There are certainly critics. So I'm not a, uh, I've been watching the Supreme Court the past, you know, year because of this litigation. I'm not someone who has closely followed the Supreme Court as an institution or its decisions across multiple areas. But I am perfectly comfortable saying that people I respect who do pay close attention to the court's rulings across different subject matter areas have said this looks like an imperial court that is picking those cases that involve issues that they want to weigh in on, whether they are fully developed, right? Meaning that have they come up through the courts of appeals, fully briefed, fully developed with a factual record that is complete or not, right? So so some of the questions I, I mentioned a moment ago about Mohila, the student loan servicer in Missouri, and whether it might send less money or pay less money to the state. Some of the questions that came up in the course of oral argument on that have answers and they could be added to the record if there were more time, if there were more more briefing, if the factual record were more fully developed. Yeah, we could talk about the court's use of the record for a while too, because I know that there's been lots of stuff about the court just completely kind of abandoning the trial court record and what's been the factual basis and to talk about whatever they want to talk about in terms of the law. But talk to me about oral argument in general. What were you most surprised about the justices focusing on or perhaps ignoring? Yeah, I was struck by, it's a good segue, I was struck by the way in which, I can't remember which justice, but there were, there were I think two of them invoked hypothetical people, one who borrowed to start a business and one who borrowed to go pursue higher education and suggesting that student debt cancellation favors one and not the other, and suggesting that that, that was not fair, which struck me as a really interesting view of the historical record because... First of all, there are incentives and loan programs to aid people in starting businesses. So we do that. And in the course of the pandemic, there were benefits for businesses. Uh, but separately, the whole rationale for intervening to make higher education more affordable, right, to provide student loans, to provide grant aid to students, is to encourage people to do this, that we want people to do this. It's not a mistake when a student borrows to pursue higher education. The government is suggesting, here's a tool to enable you to pursue higher education. We're all going to benefit if you do. So to suggest that it's not fair to then help out those students, right, in the context of a global pandemic, which has resulted in the, right, we're talking a moment ago about the pivot to remote operation of colleges and universities, right? the economic impacts of having to care for family members, some of whom may be sick over the course of the pandemic. The idea that it's not fair to help those borrowers out when they have done what the government has attempted to incentivize them to do, that doesn't seem unfair. Right. It's almost like wasn't student loan debt supposed to be a good thing for students in the first place, not right. a hindrance. Right. And it has those dual attributes, right? It makes things possible, but it comes at a cost. Is it, is it the, the policy tool that, that I think all students would want? No, I think students quite rationally would prefer to have grants so that they didn't have to repay at the back end. So we probably won't get a ruling in the case until June, but coming out of oral argument, what were your views on where you thought the court was going to take these two cases? I don't know. I don't know. And the reason I'm not sure is because of that multi-level chess game. So I'm sure that some of the justices are worried that if they find standing in these cases, there will be future cases that they are not going to want to hear that will cite to this as precedent and say, well, we have standing too. It's just as tenuous as the plaintiffs in the student loan cases, right? So there's that, right? There's that 
potential risk of a precedent that they might come to regret. On the other hand, right, from a partisan political perspective, it is a chance to undo a signature initiative of a democratic administration. So the conservative justices in the majority might want to seize that chance. It's also a chance to trim back the power of the administrative state, right? So there's that and that longer running effort to figure out what can the what can the executive branch do on its own and when can it be constrained in the absence of really clear congressional authorization. This is an opportunity to advance that cause of limiting the administrative state. And these kind of cut against each other. So I don't know what concern is going to dominate for a majority of the justices. And because it, there's so much that we still don't know and still might not know. And even when the court releases a ruling, it could be very unclear what the implications of that ruling are for regular borrowers. What will the ramifications of the case be for borrowers, people that maybe their debt's been on pause or they think it's going to get canceled? What should they be doing right now or what should they be prepared for? Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid that the resumption, if the pause ends in the absence of cancellation, I do worry about the impact on borrowers, right, who for now more than two years have probably become accustomed to not having had to make these payments and maybe have paid down other debt obligations, right? Or haven't incurred debt obligations that they didn't need to incur, but they may not have saved. So the resumption of payment obligations will obviously be a burden. There's also the possibility that restarting this machinery of student loan servicing, keeping track of who owes how much, that's complicated. Servicers make mistakes. There has been litigation around what servicers have done in terms of handling of students' loan obligations. So I encourage students to keep very careful track of what their loan balances are, what payments they've made, right? So that they can ensure that whatever happens, they have a record that they can show, this is what I borrowed and this is what I owe. And then my broader response to your question is students who are old enough to vote should vote. And this podcast is generally directed at high school students. College is insanely expensive. I'm a junior, my brother's a senior, so my parents know that firsthand. What should high school students understand about how this case could impact their future borrowing and how they should set up for college? So this is this is a really interesting question because the loan cancellation is a one-time thing, right? The way it's proposed is it's a one-time thing of benefiting current borrowers with, with balances. So one of the critiques is it doesn't fix the problem of college costs for students going forward. There are other steps the administration has been taking, right, like modifying the income-linked repayment plans for borrowers, right? There are other changes in the works that will be more meaningful for people who are just starting to borrow and pay for college. But the cancellation, like I said, again, this is one of the critiques, the cancellation for someone who's in high school now, it's not, it sets an important precedent. Maybe there'll be another cancellation in the future, but it doesn't eliminate the burden of higher education finance for students going forward. You've kind of anticipated my next question because I feel like these cases and certainly the general political conversation around student debt is college is really, really expensive and we first of all, like limit access to higher education and then burden students with debt when we try to make higher education more accessible. So how are these cases and this conversation kind of a broader referendum on that? And maybe not these cases, but just the general student loan cancellation. Yeah, I think people have divergent views on higher education, right? And there's more discussion and I see more survey results in newspapers and stuff about is college worth it? 
there's a conception of college as an investment in future earnings, right? So it's a personal benefit just to the individual student. I'm going to borrow to go to college, then I will earn a higher income because I'll have a college degree. And there's a competing view of higher education as a public good, right? That when we have more people who have gone to college, all of us benefit, right? And so you'll you'll hear often quite glowing language about the benefits of having an informed electorate, right? An educated electorate. But now that college is increasingly also under partisan attack, right, being accused of indoctrinating students with particular perspectives, it's harder to make the public good argument. It's harder to assert that everyone benefits from greater access to higher education. And that leaves that private good, the personal benefit argument. And the problem with the personal benefit argument is it kind of undermines the justification for anybody subsidizing a particular student's educational opportunity. If the student is going to college in order to make more money, and they will because they complete the degree program, why should other people help subsidize that? right? That's the critique. It's it's just harder to justify. So I fear that in all of our emphasis, our collectively emphasis on higher education as a way to promote upward socioeconomic mobility, we're also undermining other possible justifications for community investment in higher education accessibility. Does that make sense? And I think that these cases kind of illustrate that, right? Like what, when the justices ask why benefit just these kinds of borrowers rather than these other kinds of borrowers, they are exploiting the different perceptions of higher education as something that is a personal private good as opposed to a public shared good. Right. So if going to college isn't just generally a good thing that everyone should want to do and that we should want everyone else to do, then why is it the government's responsibility or anyone else's responsibility to make it easier for people to go to college? Yes, but I want to be careful. It's not that everybody should go or something like that, but if we want people to be able to go if they want to, Exactly. Right. Then there has to be a justification for why the community should invest in making that possible. And if it's just individual socioeconomic mobility, and it's perceived as a race, a competition, it's harder to articulate the basis for public intervention to make higher education more available. I think we also then get to the question of how did college get so expensive in the first place, right? Because it can cost $80,000 a year to go to certain colleges around the country, which makes it inaccessible for almost everyone, regardless of whether they want to go for private gain or for a public good. So it's almost like college is just so out of reach. I mean, remember that the so-called sticker price is not the price that students pay. There's a net price after right federal aid and grant aid, right scholarships and so on that students have access to. That is the meaningful number for individual students. But you're right. I mean, the sticker price is high. It's incredibly high. And the sticker price is out of reach for many, many, many students, too many students. And there are economists who have looked into this, right, asking the question, why is college, why does it cost what it costs? And there are different critiques, right? In the context of public colleges and universities, one of the critiques is, well, states have been funding the institutions less, and the institutions have had to raise tuition in order to cover costs that in the past were covered by the state. It's also the case that federal grant aid hasn't kept pace with increases in college costs. And so if you go back 
40 years, federal grant aid would cover much more of the cost of higher education than it does now, right? If you look at Pell Grant amounts, for example. What would you want high school students to take away from these two cases and from the broader conversation around student debt at the Supreme Court and in political circles? What is the one thing high school students should understand about these cases and what they mean? that the decisions about educational access and opportunity are political decisions. Nothing is set in stone. The fact that we do something in a particular way doesn't mean we have to keep doing it in a particular way. And so I hope, and I always take inspiration from my students who are a little, little older than you, but I take inspiration from my students in that they are so willing to think about alternative possibilities. If this way doesn't work, what's another way? If debt has this dual characteristic and we don't like one of those characteristics, what's an alternative and how could we conceive of that? It's the asking not of why, but of why not that I always appreciate. And I hope that students will continue to think and to ask the kinds of questions you're asking about why do we have a regime that doesn't do everything that we want it to do. Well, Professor Wader, thank you so, so much for joining. This has been a really, really, really fascinating and just wide-ranging conversation. So really, really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. What an awesome conversation with a truly special guest. This topic is more relevant than ever, as every high school student has to deal with the crazy, crazy expensive college environment and how much it costs just to be able to attend school for four years. So we really hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Professor Glader and hope you learned something. He is an amazing person and a great law professor. We can't wait to see you next time and we have some amazing episodes lined up. But for now, leave us a rating, drop us a review, and for more coverage of the Supreme Court by teenagers, check out the High School SCOTUS website at highschoolscotus.com. On the blog, you can read oral argument previews, opinion analysis, and interviews with eminent legal scholars. Literally everything you need to stay in touch with the court. That's highschoolscotus.com. We can't wait to see you next time.